Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. That's where we'll be focusing most of our time, Genesis 3. We started a, a new series last week looking at God's generosity. That's the word that I want to try to use as much as possible and for you to be thinking about. Uh, generosity, I know it's, it's a little different than other words, I guess, that you could use, but that's what I want us to focus on. And we took our time last week looking at uh, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we also looked at Psalm 104, seeing God's generosity in creation. And we've really been talking quite a bit about that uh, over the last few weeks. And I, I hope that you took some time this week to, to reflect on that. If you really think about it, this past week, we had some beautiful weather around here. Nice and cool in the morning. And then as it went on during the day, it would get a little bit warmer where you could enjoy the sun. And it really was a, a beautiful week that God provided for us. And so I hope you were able to think a little bit about God's creation. Uh, maybe you got to spend time with family and you could reflect on God's goodness to you uh, in the family that you have. But at the end of the sermon last week, we looked at Romans chapter eight, and I want to read it again just so we can reflect on it a little bit more. In Romans chapter eight, verse 28 through 30, remember when the apostle Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I read that for us this morning to be reminded, all of us in here, that all of creation is working together for your good. I don't think we always think about that. I don't think we always feel that way either. But if you are in Christ, if you've been saved by God's grace, then everything is working together for your good. And when you get past that verse there in verse 28 to the rest of it, we see the promise. You will be glorified. God called you. God has saved you. God has justified you. These are things that have happened to you. Uh, and we look forward to glorification. But Paul writes as if it's happened. It, it's done. It's sealed. And that is the promise that we have because of Christ and what he has done. And so I think that should change how we then live, how we view life. And that's really the point of this series. And seeing how good God is to us, it will impact, I think, about how we see life, how we live life. And so this reminder that all creation today, all time, all everything is working for my good and for your good. It becomes astonishing to think about it, really, when you think about history and everything that is involved and all of that working for me now at this point. That's how good God is to me and to you. And so today what I want us to do is I want us to look at our response to God's generosity. When you think about generosity and somebody being generous, there's many ways that one can respond to somebody being generous to us, isn't there? Uh, we can respond with humility and with thankfulness. Uh, sometimes we act as if we deserve the generosity Somebody is generous to you and your response is about time, right? That's what you think. It's about time this happened. Uh, some of us maybe struggle at times with people's generosity and we just take it for granted. I would say a lot of us, looking back to our childhood, would have to repent of this sin with our parents, many of us, of how generous our parents were to us and kind they were to us. And we just simply took that for granted of how kind they were. Or, and this is a struggle some of us have with generosity, we just simply refuse it. Someone's trying to be generous to you, but you are so humble, 
No, 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 you can't do that for me, right? Uh, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't stand for that. And so as somebody maybe is trying to honor God and be generous to you in some way of kindness, oh, no, 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 no. It appalls you that somebody would be generous to you. See, there's, I'm sure there's other ways, if you think about it, that people would respond to generosity. But I think for us to understand ourselves a little better, what I think is important for us is to look at how God's generosity has been responded to. And we'll do this by looking at Genesis 3, as I mentioned, and I hope that you've uh, turned there by now. It's an easy one to find. It's three, three chapters in. First book of the Bible, uh, three chapters in. I read this week somewhere, I, I wish I could remember who said it, but I, I don't remember as I was reading but they pointed out a good thing. The Bible completely does not make sense if you don't read Genesis chapter three. If you read Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two and you skip three and you go to four, you're gonna think, what happened? What is happening? And then in fact, the rest of the Bible makes no sense. What's the point of all of this? Why is this happening? Everything was perfect and good. We really need to understand Genesis chapter three because it is a turning point in the Bible. It's the turning point in the history of man. And so it's important for us to grasp, I think, everything that is happening in chapter three here. And so I wanna look at really just the, the first seven verses this morning and helping us with this. So follow along with me as we read Genesis chapter three, verses one through seven. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We're introduced to this serpent here in chapter three and verse one. And as we're introduced to this serpent who was created by God, one of God's creatures here, we're told something about it, aren't we? That it's crafty. It says the serpent was crafty, more crafty than any other beast of the field. Now, for many, when we read this, and I would probably be this way too, right off the bat, we would look at this craftiness as being wrong or even sinful. But it's not. We gotta be careful not to make that mistake. Being crafty isn't sinful. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, uh, Jesus talking here, he says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It actually attributes that to how we should be. Be wise as the serpent is. This craftiness isn't a sinful thing, but it's, it is something that, a uh, characteristic of this serpent that God created in him, but what was about to happen was uh, this characteristic was about to be abused is what was about to happen as we continue reading. Although here in Genesis, we don't see uh, Satan at all, do we? It doesn't say that Satan uh, went into this serpent, that Satan, we, we don't see that. It just, it just says the serpent. We know, though, from Scripture that this is Satan himself, don't we? Revelation speaks of this, the very last book of the Bible. In Revelation 20, uh, verse 2, it says, And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, 
and Satan and bound him for a thousand years, right? We, we have this being attributed here to Satan. This is, this is Satan doing this work. And there's a lot written. Uh, it was amazing to me as I was studying this chapter how much ink has been written about was this Satan appearing as a snake? Was this Satan embodying a snake? Was this Satan possessing a snake? To which, to be honest with you, as I'm sitting there, I think, who cares? That, that's how my mind works. Maybe that's wrong. Uh, maybe that frustrates you that I think that way. But I was like, I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's what we really need to be focusing on here. Uh, what, what happens is we see Adam and Eve, and I think this is a big deal. Adam and Eve, who if you remember last week, were created at the very end. And what were they told to do? They were told to have dominion over all of creation and to subdue it. And now what they were doing is they were listening to one of God's creation, one of these beasts of the field, and they were letting this beast lead them. That's what was happening. They were letting this beast take over, to which one commentator wrote, it was as if the slave was taking the slave master by the hand and saying, come over here, let's do this. And we know that's not how it works. That wouldn't work in our military. Some little petty officer couldn't take the hand of a general and say, I've got ideas. I think this is a better plan doesn't work that way. And that's exactly what we see happening here in Genesis 3. The craftiness of the serpent was being abused by Satan and was being used then to go after God's creation of man and woman who was made in the image of God. And it's interesting to see, isn't it, that when the serpent speaks, what does he do? The serpent wants to put something in Adam and Eve's mind so that they will start to question God's generosity. That's where he goes. And he does this by lying, doesn't he? Because he asks a question. He says, did God say you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? We know if we look back, which we're going to do in Genesis chapter 2. Go ahead and flip there. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 and 17 shows us that this absolutely was not true. This completely is a lie. Because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, it says, the Lord God took the man put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. The devil actually does, Satan, himself, Satan here does the says the exact opposite of what God says. Did God say that you couldn't eat of any tree of the garden? The response should be, actually, he said we could eat of all the trees of the garden. God was very generous and kind. Look at them all. All of this is for us to enjoy and for us to have. But instead, Satan wants them to think about the one thing that God said, just don't touch. And he turns it into a way of, look how restrictive God is. Look how little God likes you. Look how little God loves you. That, that's, that's what's happening here. Now, there are questions that could be had, right, about the, the rules and why does it happen. And, and we know, I think as parents, if you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or a teacher or, or if you deal with uh, children in any way, I hope that you know that rules are intended for a reason, aren't they? The rules are, are given. Why? Because you love and you care for them and you want good for them. And so rules are actually helping them avoid hurt, avoid hardship, uh, avoid trouble. You, you don't want this to happen to them. And so that's why the rules are in place, right? You, you, you want this for them. And, and we have this with, with God as well. And we have God being this generous God, this kind God, giving them all things and just telling them there is, there is one thing 
that you shouldn't touch and that you shouldn't eat. Now, you might ask this question because it does come to my mind as well. Why did God create the tree anyways? I mean, that has to be asked, doesn't it? Now, sadly, I'm not going to give you the answer today. That's your homework. You can do that on your own. I'm going to trust you to look up that yourself. But that would be a fair question to then ask. God created that tree. Couldn't he have in his plan not had that tree? Then there wouldn't have been any rules. Now, I tend to lean towards the mystery of God, the sovereignty of God, and trust his plan, even when I can't fully answer the question and understand it. But I do think it's a fair question to ask. And again, hopefully you'll do some reading on your own. But what God was doing here was God is being generous in creation, giving all things to Adam and Eve, everything. And he's even being generous in telling them, but don't eat of this one tree. Don't. Because when you eat of it, he says, you're going to die. What's going to happen is you'll die. So just don't touch the tree. And so Satan enters himself here into this picture. And what does he want? He wants Adam and Eve to question God's generosity. Again, as we read forward, we hope, We hope amongst hope that they will answer correctly, that they would say, no, God has given us everything. No, God has been so kind. There's apple trees and there's pear trees and there's peaches and there's oranges and there's all the seeds. These are all for us. Everything is for us. And in fact, all the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky, they get to eat of it. They get to eat of it too. God God has been so kind to us. That's, That's what you hope happens. But we see her response, don't we, in verses 2 and 3. She does okay, but she also has a major flaw. It says, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of all the fruit of the trees in the garden. Yes, that's the right answer. Please stop talking at this point is what we would think. But she doesn't. It says, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Again, still correct. But all of a sudden, Eve adds to the law because she says, neither shall you touch it lest you die. This might not seem like a big deal to you, but this, in fact, is a very big deal. There are some who actually would credit this with the first sin. Some commentators that you read would say, this is the first sin. Eve is adding to the law of God that wasn't there. Chad Bird, who I quote some because I've been reading his book, when you, when you read his little book, which is out there for you to get, if you want, he, he paints the picture actually very beautiful, beautifully. Adam and Eve actually could have had a swing in that tree if they wanted to. They could have enjoyed the shade of that tree. They could have climbed that tree. They could have had their house under that tree. All God said was, don't eat of the fruit of that tree. He didn't say, don't enjoy it, don't touch it. There, there was none of that. But all of a sudden, Eve fell in herself to add to the law of God which she need not do. And so we see this addition saying we couldn't even touch it. We have to be careful as Christians not to do this ourselves. And we do fall into that trap of where we start to add to the word of God. We, we start to add rules and laws and it really can get us in trouble. It can lead us down the wrong area. And we, we have to make sure that we don't do that because we see Eve doing this And it leads to a whole array of problems. Look at verse 4 and 5 again. Because here we see God's character beginning to be questioned. It says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. What, what Satan does is he pounces on Eve's statement by saying, you're not going to die. In fact, what's going to happen, and God knows this, you are going to be like him. You see, Adam and Eve were made in the image of him, but now they were being promised with the ability to be, to be like him. And that becomes appealing to them, as we sadly see. See, what is, what is Satan doing here? Again, he is saying God is stingy. He is saying God is not a generous God. In fact, he's kept things away from you, and he just doesn't want you to be like him. But there is a way to be like him. And so he's planting these seeds in Adam and Eve's minds of doubt of God's goodness, the, the God that would walk with them in the evenings, the, the God that would, would care for them and create them and love them and feed them with his creation and give them perfect peace and harmony and unity. They start to question that God's goodness. So Satan, being very crafty, isn't he? And this ends up leading to the downfall and to the sin Believing the lie that God is not a generous God, that God is holding out from me, leads to sin. And we see this in verse 6, don't we? We are devoured by, God, by selfishness. And so in verse 6 it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. It's interesting that this sin is selfishness, isn't it? That's like the biggest thing dealing with kids, if you've dealt with kids much, is selfishness, often. The kid takes a toy and goes to the corner. That same kid then gets another toy, forgets about toy one, and starts playing with toy two. The other kid comes and wants toy one, and what happens? An all-out fight at times. And you say, but you weren't even playing with that toy. Yes, I was. No, you weren't. You moved on to toy two. No, no, no. It had its spot right there. It needs to stay there. What is riling up inside of that child? Selfishness. Complete selfishness. Now, I want to take this to make it feel a little more at home. I don't deal with a lot of children in my work anymore. I deal with grown-up children. And can I tell you, we all struggle with selfishness. That little scenario I said plays out perfectly with most of us adults. I know we can get very frustrated with that situation and we can rag on those kids and we can try to point at them and we can yell at them, you're being selfish, you need to share. But we all know, deep down inside, that is our problem. And it comes from our parents of long ago, Adam and Eve, Selfishness kicked in, and instead of looking to the God who had created everything for them and for their good, instead what they did is they listened to this serpent that God created for them to subdue and have dominion over. They listened to that serpent and said, well, maybe he knows better than God, and maybe if we eat of it, we can be like God. That sounds great. God's holding back from us. Our loving Father doesn't seem so loving anymore. Maybe we need to go a different route. And as a result, death crept in right away. Because look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. Okay. They got what they wanted. You now can know good and evil like God. 
How do you feel? Well, their first feeling, their first feeling after eating of the tree that they were told not to eat of was what? Shame, utter shame. Because what did they realize? We're naked and there's something wrong with this. And so they sow for themselves leaves to cover themselves for the first time in their life. Adam and Eve being alone together, husband and wife joined together as one, it tells us, looked at each other and felt shame because they were naked before each other. That's not how it was meant to be, was it? But because of their selfishness, because of their desire to be like God, now they were completely consumed with shame. And what were they shameful of? They were shameful of how God created them. That's what the shame was in. Because they hadn't changed. Uh, nothing about them physically had, had changed. So they were shame in how they were created and they had this need to cover themselves up. It had to be, that had to be a fascinating experience. No shame, complete shame. You see, you and I don't understand that because as far back as we can remember, our life has been shame. We know the wrong we do. We know the sin of ourselves. We, we dream of being naked somewhere and we wake up full of shame, don't we? It didn't even happen in real life, but we feel the shame. We feel the embarrassment. You see, sin now had entered the world and as a result, it wasn't just Adam and Eve that it destroys. We know that it's all of creation that gets destroyed. Sin reigns and sin rules in the heart of man ever since. Sin has brought creation even to a struggle. It has subjected creation to this. We, we know this in, in Romans 8 and even later in chapter 3 when, when God tells Adam, well now, you know how it used to be easy for the fruit to come. <laughs> you would work and it would work every time. Not so much anymore. Now it's going to be by the sorrow of your brow. You're going to have to work very hard in order to get food and to be sustained. All of this, why? Because of the inward focus of man, of, of staring at themselves. And what did they do? They, instead of looking to the generosity of God, they started to look to self. Today, all we hear, I hear this all over the place, is that we are to look within. I, I hear that all the, the time. It can be stated, it can be stated in different ways. See, things like follow your dreams has this inward focus, doesn't it? If you can dream it, man, you can, you can do it. What a lie. That is a, a, a complete and utter lie. Every baccalaureate I've ever been to, which is supposed to be a Christian service for graduates, somebody says that statement. Go follow your dreams. And I think, what a dumb thing to say to these students. Because some of them have horrible dreams that they shouldn't follow, first of all. You don't want them to achieve those dreams. But secondly, you're just telling them like everything they think and want is good. And that's what they should focus on. That's not what the Christian life is supposed to be about. That's not the, that's not the God that we serve. I hear things like this every morning when you get up. You should speak positive things to yourself. That way they will manifest out of you. What? Where does that come from? I can tell you where that comes from. The serpent. The serpent. 
Don't you think you're special? Don't you think you should be like God? Don't you think that you can make this stuff happen or that you should be able to make this stuff happen? You see, Satan is alive and well today, isn't he? Still convincing us that we are the givers of life. That, that you and I determine our destiny. That you and I de determine our direction. That, in fact, you and I can determine how our day goes. That you can determine if it's a good day or if it's a bad day. That's a lie of Satan still continuing to go on. And you would think, after thousands and thousands of years, and you would think with a book that has been given to us by God to reveal him to us, that by now us as Christians would have caught on to this. But we haven't, have we? We all still struggle with this, still convincing ourselves that we are the ones to provide for ourselves. That we are the ones that we have to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and get out there if we are going to achieve anything. Forgetting, forgetting very quickly that it's God who is the generous creator. It's God who provides. It's God who can change us. It's God who gives us peace. Right? Sadly, though, when we read Genesis 3, many of us realize we are not too far removed from Adam and Eve. Though we might do Ancestry.com or whatever, it might not trace us all the way back to Adam and Eve. We know it's our father and our mother, and we are just like them. Every single day, struggling with this selfishness, looking to God who is generous and saying, if only you would have given me more. But now i got to go do it on my own. So the question then, I think, is there for all of us this morning of how do we remove ourselves from this cycle? How do we... How do we get out of this cycle of selfishness? If I can't just speak it into myself, and if others can't do it for me, how, how does it happen? How, how do I get removed? Well, I think there's two important things that we should know right now. The first thing is this. We cannot become less inwardly focused, less selfish, just by trying harder. I want you to know that, and I want you to realize that. We, we cannot just simply use the law to convince people to get over themselves, uh, to convince people to be more generous, let's say. There, there's a change that has to happen first. Now, as believers, I think we know what the change is. We know that scripture tells us, and we're gonna talk more about this next week. I, I really would encourage you to invite somebody lost to be here next week uh, so that they can see the generous gift God has given us in Christ. Uh, that's what the whole focus will be on. And so I hope that you could bring someone with you to hear that. But, but we know as Christians, those of us who have been saved by God's grace, we, we know that Christ is the one who changes a heart. Yet inside of us, some of you have been Christians for 40 years, 50 years, 15 years, whatever it might be, you know, just like I know, we, we struggle. We still struggle with this. It, it still comes up in every facet of our life. I, I guarantee you there's nobody in here who knows how selfish I am as much as my wife. She probably would tell you, he's pretty selfish. He always wants to eat at a certain place, right? He, when he's tired, guess what he wants to do? Go to bed. He don't care about anything else that's going on. He, he wants to sleep. She, she sees my selfishness more than I probably see my selfishness. It's a struggle that we all still go with. And oftentimes, what comes into Tim's mind is this phrase that I've actually heard quoted often in the office attributed to me. 
do better. Uh, we have a staff member who says that's my classic line to them all the time. You know what you guys could do? Better. Just do better. And what we find is I'm simply not doing better. Maybe you hear that same voice in your head. Your name isn't Tim, but in my head it says, Tim, just do better. You have the book. You know what you're supposed to be doing. Fight it harder, right? Battle it better. In his book there that I've been using, Chad Bird says, the lack of human generosity is directly proportional to our perceived lack of divine generosity. When I read that, it hit me. Because that's what Adam and Eve were doing. They saw what the serpent had to offer and what he was saying, and instantly they thought, I lack that because God isn't generous enough. And oftentimes, that's the trap that I can fall into. I think, God, you're not a good father. You're, you're a father holding something back from me right now. Again, go back to your teenage years. How many times did you think of that of your parents? They're just holding back. They did, this would be good for me. Why would they not let me do this? They just, they don't care. They just must not love me, right? Why will they not let me go to this party where all of my friends are? It's going to make me happy, and they know that. But your parents are smarter than you at that point, and nowadays parents text each other, and we often get text. Not a good party to go to. Be careful. I'm hearing this, right? And then I get to go to my kids and say, yeah, you probably shouldn't go there. What? Why not? All my friends are going to be there. It's not a good place for you. And in their minds, they think, dad's holding back. Dad's holding me back. When in fact, what is it? It's coming from a heart of generosity and care. No. There's so much better for you. Danger could happen there. Hurt could happen there. Again, as parents and as grandparents, we can look at those scenarios that I say, and we can all agree 100%. But so often in our life, we look at God and we say, God, why are you holding back? I'll give you, I'll give you a scenario I guarantee hits home to some of you. God, why has my 401k went down 1%? Edward Jones promised it would go up 5%. That's what they said. Why don't you love me enough to allow me to retire today? Why are you holding back? There's some that are even harder. I know money can be whatever, but there's some of you probably listening and you would love to have kids and it's just not happening. And you look at God and you say, why don't you love me? Why don't you care for me? Why aren't you, why aren't you giving us a child that you know we want? Why, why are you holding back your generosity from me? I can't answer that question. You can't answer that question either. But what I can warn you is don't listen to the serpent. Don't let Satan tell you that God is not generous to you. He's given you everything. That's why I started with Romans 8. All of this creation for you as a believer is for your good. It's all working together for your good. And while we might not understand the situations that we find ourselves in, why our finances the way they are, or why some friendships happen to be the way they are, or why, as I just mentioned, why, why are we not having a child? It's what we've so longed to do. 
you question these things and you, you wonder these things, I, I want to urge you to look to the generous God who's the giver of all good things and know that he does love you. He does continue to, to care for you. As I mentioned, we're gonna talk a lot greater detail of this next week, but God solved our real problem, didn't he, with the devil. Our problem that Adam and Eve fell into and that we today still continue to live in. He solved the problem by being generous enough that in our problem he would lay forth his own son to take our place, wouldn't he? In Romans chapter five, verse 18 through 21, it should be up on the screen for you to see. I know it can be a little confusing sometimes to follow Romans chapter five, but I hope that you'll follow this as I read it. Because in what Adam failed to do, because Adam sinned, Adam, Adam looked within, didn't he? Adam got selfish and he went against the generous God. God didn't say, speak positively to yourself and it'll get better. Right? God, God didn't say, do this, 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 and this, and then you will be okay. Throughout all of scripture, scripture was pointing us to something. Scripture was pointing us to someone to come, a Messiah to come, and, and that person was not just some person. It was God's son, God's only son. The word made flesh would, would come, and in Romans 5, verses 18 through 21, it tells us that he came to be a better Adam for us. He came to solve the problem. He says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Some of you this morning, you're not a Christian. You've, you've never trusted in Christ. And the truth of the matter is the only way that you could ever deal with your selfishness, the, the only way you could ever deal with the guilt and the shame that you walk around with, it's not, it's not a therapist. It's, it's not your, your friend just talking to you. It's not some drink or some pill. It's, it's nothing like that. The Bible is very clear. The, the only way that we can be restored is through trusting in Christ, that he did it for us. Adam and Eve has led us to sin. Jesus has come to give us righteousness and to give it abundantly. And it's a gift of, of grace, not of something we must do. It's a, it's a gift that he pours out on us. You see, this was the promise way back in the Old Testament of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, there was this promise that God was giving. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see, some of you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to take your heart of stone and you're trying to make it flesh again. But the problem is, you are not the creator. You can't create. Only the creator can do that. Only the creator can give you a new heart of flesh. And until you recognize that, that heart is still gonna be stone. It's still gonna be stone. Only God can change that heart. Again, for those of us who are saved and we, we know that God has done that for us, 
We still struggle at times, I understand. We still can feel that heart of stone at times, that sin that creeps in, that selfishness. This is why the gospel is so important to us every day. You and I need to be reminded every day that we live in light of the gospel. Every day God is giving me that heart of flesh. He didn't just give me the heart of flesh when I was seven, when I was saved. Every day, freshness. Every day, new blood beating through me because he saved me by his grace. This is why, thankfully, I get to recognize my selfishness. And thankfully, I know I can go to my loving father who is more than happy and more than generous enough every day to say, Tim, here is forgiveness free again. Here is forgiveness free again. To be honest, it gets old hearing Pastor Spencer come up here, doesn't it, every Sunday and remind us to confess our sins. It's not because Spencer's saying it, but it's old to think, I have to confess my sin again. Again, in Tim's head, when, Pat, when Spencer says that is, Tim, do better. You can do better. Go do better. But thankfully, as he reads the scripture, I'm reminded there's one who did it perfectly for me. And it's in him that my satisfaction is found. Jesus. So it's not about Tim, do better. It's about, God, look how amazing you are. Look how generous you are. And it takes that inward focus of me and it fixes it again back to Christ. Back to the loving Father who sent his son to change my heart of stone. See, throughout this series, my prayer has been pretty consistent. And I hope that it'll be your prayer too. It's a very simple prayer. Lord, help us to see just how generous you are. My reason for that is because I know that when that happens we will then in turn want to be generous like our Father. We in turn will rest on his generosity, not on us. As we understand how generous God has been to us, our Father has been to us, we won't let Satan continue to deceive us and telling us, but there is more out there. Look how much fun that is. If God really loved you, he wouldn't deny you of that, would he? This is the struggle of the world. And so hopefully we as the church will see how generous God is, to see how loving and free he is and how good he is. Remember what Romans 8, 32 said, and this is how we will end. Paul, in writing to this church, he reminds them, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I don't know what struggles you walked in here with today, but I guarantee you walked in here with some struggles. That's just a matter of life. I'm not gonna sit here and deny that. But as we walked in here today as well, all of us have a loving father that gives us all good things. How could he not if he gave us his son? You might've walked in this door wondering if God really loved you and cared for you. But I hope that when you walk out those doors, you won't be wondering that anymore. Now, don't get me wrong. 
by Monday, probably before that, you and I will start to doubt it again. But I hope that God in his grace will remind you again of his generosity. And you'll tell that serpent, that wily devil, no, there is nothing better than the love of my father who graciously gives me everything. He holds nothing back from me. All is mine in Christ. And the promise is for those he called, he also justifies. Those he justifies, he glorifies. And one day I'll be glorified with him forever. And so Satan, you can't lie to me today. I have a generous, loving father who loves me more than I could ever even love myself. I think when we live that way, I think when we understand that, I think we'd live a lot happier life. I think we'd have a lot more joy, a lot more peace, and a lot less shame because we're living in light of the gospel as we're called to do. I want us to bow together and pray. We're gonna sing one last song to close. I hope you'll respond to the word of God this morning. But with every head bowed and every eye closed, I do want to remind you of this. And I hope this is what you're seeing from scripture. I hope this is what you're hearing from the sermon. God loves us so much that he has freed us through Christ. I want us to feel that freeness of guilt and shame because it's ours in Christ. Yes, we still stumble. But our Father loves us so much, as I said, that every day his grace is fresh and new and he's promised it's going to be that way every day all the way till you're glorified with him. That's the promise. And so if there is ever a people group in this world who can walk with their head held high, with their shoulders in the right position, living a joyful life, it's us Christians. Because we know that all of this creation is for us. And it's only given to us because of the love of the Father and the love that he has for us. And so I hope you feel loved by him. I hope you know that. If you haven't trusted in him through Jesus, I hope you will. But I hope you understand that freedom. God, we thank you today for the freedom that you've given us in Christ. I know we're gonna talk more about that next week. But God, as we look at Genesis chapter three and we see that turning point in history, that time when it went from perfection, perfect unity, to just complete disruption because of sin. God, we look at that and I think as we go through that, I know at least for me, I, oh, it just seems so real and evident today that we, we see that corruption, we see that struggle within our own heart, we see it in our communities, in our families, we see it everywhere. So God, we, we long for that day when Christ will return, when all things will be restored. We long for the day when Satan will be thrown and cast into the pit forever. But God, until that day, I pray that we would understand that even now as believers, we live free. The righteousness of Christ is on us. It's who we are. And you love us and you care for us. And there's nothing that will separate us from you. And so God, I pray that we would live in that freedom, that it would give us a a joy that it would allow us to love each other well, but also to love our neighbors well, to love our society well. Because we know that many of them are lost. 
They don't even understand what they're doing. But we do. And so God, I pray that you would help us with that. We want to be generous people, but we know we can only do that as we keep our eyes on you and your generosity. And so I pray that through this series, that would be true. God, as we sing this last song now, I pray that it would be worship. We'd sing these songs to you and to you alone, that you would be honored and that you would be glorified. And God, of course, I pray that we would respond to your word as well, whatever that may be, seeking you in prayer, confessing sin to you, maybe just praise to you. I don't know. But we want to respond to your word rightly, so help us with that now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.